Section 19 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1 by James Boswell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Observations of Shakespeare, Itart 38. He this year wrote the preface to the Harleian Miscellany, asterisk. Footnote. Among the names of the subscribers to the Harleian Miscellany, there occurs that of Sarah Johnson, bookseller in Lichfield. Johnsoniana, page 466, The selection of the pamphlets of which it was composed was made by Mr. Aldis. Footnote. A brief account of Aldis is given in the Gentleman's Magazine, volume 54, pages 161 and 260. Like so many of his fellows, he was thrown into the fleet. After poor Aldis's release, such was his affection for the place that he constantly spent his evenings there. End of footnote. A man of eager curiosity and indefatigable diligence, who first exerted that spirit of inquiry into the literature of the old English writers by which the works of our great dramatic poet have of late been so signally illustrated. In 1745 he published a pamphlet entitled Miscellaneous Observations on the Tragedy of Macbeth with Remarks on Sir T. H.'s Sir Thomas Hanmer's edition of Shakespeare asterisk to which he affixed proposals for a new edition of that poet. Footnote. In the February number of the Gentleman's Magazine for this year, page 112, is the following advertisement speedily will be published price one shilling miscellaneous observations on the tragedy of macbeth with remarks on sir th's edition of shakespeare to which is affixed proposals for a new edition of shakespeare with a specimen printed for j roberts in warwick lane in the march number page one one four under the date of march the thirty first it is announced that it will be published on april the sixth in spite of the two advertisements and the title page which agrees with the advertisements i believe that the proposals were not published till eleven years later see post end of seventeen fifty six i cannot hear of any copy of the miscellaneous observations which contains them the advertisement is a third time repeated in the april number of the gentleman's magazine for seventeen forty five page two two four but the proposals are not this time mentioned. Tom Davies, the bookseller, gives 1756 as the date of their publication. Miscellaneous and Fugitive Pieces, Volume 2, page 87. Perhaps Johnson or the booksellers were discouraged by Hanmer's Shakespeare as well as by Warburton's. Johnson, at the end of the miscellaneous observation, says, After the foregoing pages were printed, the late edition of Shakespeare ascribed to Sir T. H. fell into my hands. End of footnote. As we do not trace anything else published by him during the course of this year, we may conjecture that he was occupied entirely with that work. But the little encouragement that was given by the public to his anonymous proposals for the execution of a task which Warburton was known to have undertaken probably damped his ardour. 
his pamphlet however was highly esteemed and was fortunate enough to obtain the approbation even of the supercilious warburton himself who in the preface to his shakespeare published two years afterwards thus mentioned it as to all those things which have been published under the titles of essays remarks observations etc on shakespeare if you accept some critical notes on macbeth given as a specimen of a projected edition and written as appears by a man of parts and genius the rest are absolutely below serious notice of this flattering distinction shown to him by warburton a very grateful remembrance was ever entertained by johnson who said he praised me at a time when praise was of value to me the rebellion of seventeen forty five anno domini seventeen forty six seventeen forty six i thirty seven in seventeen forty six it is probable that he was still employed upon his shakespeare which perhaps he laid aside for a time on account of the high expectations which were formed of warburton's edition of that great poet Footnote. the excellence of the edition proved to be by no means proportionate to the arrogance of the editor cambridge shakespeare volume one page thirty four end of footnote johnson not an ardent jacobite eight thirty eight it is somewhat curious that his literary career appears to have been almost totally suspended in the years seventeen forty five and seventeen forty six those years which were marked by a civil war in great britain when a rash attempt was made to restore the house of stuart to the throne that he had a tenderness for that unfortunate house is well known and some may fancifully imagine that a sympathetic anxiety impeded the exertion of his intellectual powers but i am inclined to think that he was during this time sketching the outlines of his great philological work Footnote. when you see mr johnson pray in square brackets give my compliments and tell him i esteem him as a great genius quite lost both to himself and to the world gilbert warmsley to garrick november the third seventeen forty six garrick correspondence volume one page forty five mr warmsley's letter does not show that johnson was idle the old man had expected great things from him i have great hopes he had written in seventeen thirty seven that he will turn out a fine tragedy writer in the nine years in which johnson had been in town he had done no doubt much admirable work but by his poem of london only was he known to the public his life of savage did not bear his name his observations on macbeth were published in april seventeen forty five his plan of the dictionary in seventeen forty seven what was johnson doing meanwhile boswell conjectures that he was engaged on his shakespeare and his dictionary that he went on working at his shakespeare when the prospect of publishing was so remote that he could not issue his proposals is very unlikely that he had been for some time engaged on his dictionary before he addressed lord chesterfield 
is shown by the opening sentences of the plan. Mr. Croker's conjecture that he was absent or concealed on account of some difficulties which had arisen during the rebellion of 1745 is absurd. At no time of his life had he been an ardent Jacobite. I have heard him declare, writes Boswell, that if holding up his right hand would have secured victory at Culloden to Prince Charles's army, he was not sure he would have held it up. Post July fourteenth, seventeen sixty three. He had never in his life been in a non juring meeting house. Post June the ninth, seventeen eighty four. For the fact that he wrote very little, if anything indeed, in the Gentleman's Magazine during these years, more than one reason may be given. In the first place, public affairs take up an unusual amount of room in its columns. Thus, in the number for December 1745, we read, Our readers being too much alarmed by the present rebellion to relish with their usual delight the debates in the Senate of Lilliput, we shall postpone them for a season, that we may be able to furnish out a fuller entertainment of what we find to be more suitable to their present taste. In the preface, it is stated, we have sold more of our books than we desire for several months past, and are heartily sorry for the occasion of it, the present troubles. During these years, then, much less space was given to literature, but besides this, Johnson likely enough refused to write for the magazine when it showed itself strongly Hanoverian. He would highly disapprove of a new Protestant litany, which was written after the following fashion. May Spaniards or French, all who join with the highland in disturbing the peace of this our blessed island, meet tempests on sea and halters on dry land. We beseech thee to hear us, good Lord. Gentleman's Magazine, Volume 15, page 551. He would be disgusted the following year at seeing the Duke of Cumberland praised as the greatest man alive. Gentleman's Magazine, Volume 15, page 235. And sung in verse that would have almost disgraced Sibber. It is remarkable that there is no mention of Johnson's plan of a dictionary in the magazine. Perhaps some coolness had arisen between him and Cave. End of footnote. None of his letters during those years are extant, so far as I can discover. This is much to be regretted. It might afford some entertainment to see how he then expressed himself to his private friends concerning state affairs. Dr. Adams informs me that at this time a favourite object which he had in contemplation was the life of Alfred, in which, from the warmth with which he spoke about it, he would, I believe, had he been master of his own will, have engaged himself rather than on any other subject. Poems wrongly assigned to Johnson, Anno Domini, seventeen forty seven. 1747, I tart 38. 
1747 it is supposed that the gentleman's magazine for may was enriched by him with five short poetical pieces distinguished by three asterisks footnote boswell proceeds to mention six End of footnote. the first is a translation or rather a paraphrase of a latin epitaph on sir thomas hanmer whether the latin was his or not i have never heard though i should think it probably was if it be certain that he wrote the english Footnote. in mrs williams's miscellanies in which this paraphrase is inserted it is stated that the latin epitaph was written by dr Freind. i do not think that the english version is by johnson i should be sorry to ascribe to him such lines as illustrious age how bright thy glories shone when hanmer filled the chair and anne the throne End of footnote as to which my only cause of doubt is that his slighting character of hanmer as an editor in his observations on macbeth is very different from that in the epitaph it may be said that there is the same contrariety between the character in the observations and that in his own preface to shakespeare Footnote in the observations johnson writing of hanmer says surely the weapons of criticism ought not to be blunted against an editor who can imagine that he is restoring poetry while he is amusing himself with alterations like these for this is the sergeant who like a good and hardy soldier fought this is the sergeant who like a right good and hardy soldier fought such harmless industry may surely be forgiven if it cannot be praised may he therefore never want a monosyllable who can use it with such wonderful dexterity johnson's works volume five page ninety three in his preface to shakespeare published eighteen years later he describes hanmer as a man in my opinion eminently qualified by nature for such studies Ibid, page 139. The editors of the Cambridge Shakespeare, volume 1, page 32, thus write of Hanmer. A country gentleman of great ingenuity and lively fancy, but with no knowledge of older literature, no taste for research, and no ear for the rhythm of earlier English verse, amused his leisure hours by scribbling down his own and his friend's guesses in Pope's shakespeare End of footnote. but a considerable time elapsed between the one publication and the other whereas the observations and the epitaph came close together the others are to miss blank blank on her giving the author a gold and silk network purse of her own weaving stella in mourning the winter's walk an ode and to lice an elderly lady i am not positive that all these were his productions but as the winter's walk has never been controverted to be his and all of them have the same mark it is reasonable to conclude that they are all written by the same hand yet to the ode 
in which we find a passage very characteristic of him being a learned description of the gout unhappy whom to beds of pain arthritic tyranny consigns there is the following note the author being ill of the gout but johnson was not attacked with that distemper till at a very late period of his life Footnote. in the universal visitor to which johnson contributed the mark which is affixed to some pieces unquestionably his is also found subjoined to others of which he certainly was not the author the mark therefore will not ascertain the poems in question to have been written by him they were probably the productions of hawksworth who it is believed was afflicted with the gout malone End of footnote. may not this however be a poetical fiction why may not a poet suppose himself to have the gout as well as to suppose himself to be in love of which we have innumerable instances and which has been admirably ridiculed by johnson in his life of cowley i have also some difficulty to believe that he could produce such a group of conceits footnote boswell italicizes conceits to show that he is using it in the sense in which johnson uses it in his criticism of cowley these conceits addison calls mixed wit that is wit which consists of thoughts true in one sense of the expression and false in the other it is most unlikely that johnson wrote such poor poems as these i shall not easily be persuaded that the following lines are his love warbles in the vocal groves and vegetation paints the plain and love and hate alike implore the skies that stella mourn no more the winter's walk has two good lines but these may have been supplied by johnson i have also some difficulty to believe that he could produce such a group of conceits as appear in the verses to lice in which he claims for this ancient personage as good a right to be assimilated to heaven as nymphs whom other poets have flattered he therefore ironically ascribes to her the attributes of the sky in such stanzas as this her teeth the night with darkness dies she's starred with pimples o'er her tongue like nimble lightning plies and can with thunder roar but as at a very advanced age he could condescend to trifle in namby-pamby rhymes to please mrs thrale and her daughter he may have in his earlier years composed such a piece as this Footnote. the lines to lice an elderly lady would if written by him have been taken as a satire on his wife namby-pamby was the name given to ambrose phillips by pope End of footnote. It is remarkable that in this first edition of the winter's walk the concluding line is much more johnsonian than it was afterwards printed for in subsequent editions after praying to stella to snatch him to her arms he says and shield me from the ills of life whereas in the first edition it is and hide me from the sight of life a horror at life in general 
is more consonant with Johnson's habitual gloomy cast of thought. I have heard him repeat with great energy the following verses which appeared in the Gentleman's Magazine for April this year, but I have no authority to say they were his own. Indeed, one of the best critics of our age, footnote Malone, most likely is meant, Mr. Croker says, Johnson has indifferently, in the sense of without concern, in his dictionary, with this example from Shakespeare, and I will look on death indifferently. Johnson, however, here defines indifferently as in a neutral state, without wish or aversion, which is not the same as without concern. The passage which is from Julius Caesar Act one scene two is not correctly given. It is set honour in one eye and death in the other, and I will look on both indifferently. We may compare Johnson's use of indifferent in his letter to Chesterfield, post September the seventh, seventeen fifty five. The notice which you have been pleased to take of my labours has been delayed till I am indifferent and cannot enjoy it. End of footnote. Indeed, one of the best critics of our age suggests to me that the word indifferently being used in the sense of without concern, and being also very unpoetical, renders it improbable that they should have been his composition. Verses on Lord Lovett, Anno Domini, 1747 On Lord Lovett's Execution Pitied by gentle minds, Kilmarnock died. The brave Balmerino were on thy side. Radcliffe, unhappy in his crimes of youth, footnote, Radcliffe, when quite a boy, had been engaged in the rebellion of 1715, and being attainted, had escaped from Newgate. During the insurrection, in square brackets of 1745, having been captured on board a French vessel bound for Scotland, he was arraigned on his original sentence, which had slumbered so long. The only trial now conceded to him was confined to his identity. For such a course there was no precedent, except in the case of Sir Walter Raleigh, which had brought shame upon the reign of James I. Campbell's Chancellor's, edition 1846, volume 5, page 108. Campbell adds, His execution, I think, reflects great disgrace upon Lord Hardwick. In square brackets, the Lord Chancellor. End footnote. Steady in what he still mistook for truth, beheld his death so decently unmoved, the soft lamented and the brave approved. But Lovett's fate indifferently we view, footnote, in the original end, end footnote, true to no king, to no religion true. No fair forgets the ruin he has done, no child laments the tyrant of his son, no Tory pities, thinking what he was, no Whig compassions, for he left the cause. The brave regret not, for he was not brave, the honest mourn not, knowing him a knave. 
Footnote. These verses are somewhat too severe on the extraordinary person who is the chief figure in them, for he was undoubtedly brave. His pleasantry during his solemn trial, in which, by the way, I have heard Mr. David Hume observe that we have one of the very few speeches of Mr. Murray, now Earl of Mansfield, authentically given, was very remarkable. When asked if he had any questions to put to Sir Everard Faulkner, who was one of the strongest witnesses against him, he answered, I only wish him joy of his young wife. And after sentence of death in the horrible terms in cases of treason was pronounced upon him, and he was retiring from the bar, he said, Very well, my lords, we shall not all meet again in one place. He behaved with perfect composure at his execution, and called out, Dulce et decorumis pro patria mori. What joys, what glories round him wait, who bravely for his country dies. Francis Horace Odes, Book 3, Number 2, Line 13. Boswell. Old Lovett was beheaded yesterday, wrote Horace Walpole on April the 10th, 1747, and died extremely well, without passion, affectation, buffoonery, or timidity. His behaviour was natural and intrepid. Letters, volume 2, page 77, end of footnote. A Prologue by Johnson, Itard 38 This year his old pupil and friend David Garrick, having become joint patentee and manager of Drury Lane Theatre, Johnson honoured his opening of it with a prologue, asterisk, which for just and manly dramatic criticism on the whole range of the English stage, as well as for poetical excellence, is unrivalled. Footnote. My friend Mr. Courtenay, whose eulogy on Johnson's Latin poetry has been inserted in this work, ante page 62, is no less happy in praising his English poetry, but hark he sings, the strain Eden Pope admires. Indignant virtue her own bard inspires. Sublime as juvenile he pours his lays, And with the Roman shares congenial praise. In glowing numbers now he fires the age, And Shakespeare's son relooms the clouded stage. Oswell, end of footnote. Like the celebrated epilogue to the distressed mother, footnote, the play is by Ambrose Phillips. It was concluded with the most successful epilogue that was ever yet spoken on the English theatre. The three first nights it was recited twice, and not only continued to be demanded through the run, as it is termed, of the play, but whenever it is recalled to the stage, where by peculiar fortune, though a copy from the French, it yet keeps its place, the epilogue is still expected and is still spoken. Johnson's Works, Volume 8, page 389, see post April the 21st, 1773, note on Eustace Budgel. The epilogue is given in Volume 5, page 228 of Bond's Addison, and the great success that it met with is described in the spectator number three hundred and forty one end of footnote 
it was during the season often called for by the audience the most striking and brilliant passages of it have been so often repeated and are so well recollected by all the lovers of drama and of poetry that it would be superfluous to point them out in the gentleman's magazine for december this year he inserted an ode on winter which is i think an admirable specimen of his genius for lyric poetry Footnote. such poor stuff as the following is certainly not by johnson let music sound the voice of joy or mirth repeat the jocund tale let love his wanton wiles employ and o'er the season wine prevail End of footnote. End of section 19.